Section 18 of And Even Now by Max Beerbohm. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 18. William and Mary. 1920. Memories, like olives, are an acquired taste. William and Mary, I give them the Christian names that were indeed theirs, the joint title by which their friends always referred to them, were for some years an interest in my life, and had a hold on my affection. But a time came when, though I had known and liked them too well ever to forget them, I gave them but a few thoughts now and then. How, being dead, could they keep their place in the mind of a young man surrounded with large and constantly renewed consignments of the living? As one grows older, the charm of novelty wears off. One finds that there is no such thing as novelty, or, at any rate, that one has lost the faculty for perceiving it. One sees every newcomer not as something strange and special, but as a ticketed specimen of this or that very familiar genus. The world has ceased to be remarkable and one tends to think more and more often of the days when it was so very remarkable indeed i suppose that had i been thirty years older when i first knew him william would have seemed to me little worthier of attention than a tuppenny postage stamp seems to-day yet no william really had some oddities that would have caught even an oldster's eye in himself he was commonplace enough as I, coeval though I was with him, soon saw. But in details of surface he was unusual. In them he happened to be rather ahead of his time. He was a socialist, for example. In 1890 there was only one other socialist in Oxford, and he not at all an undergraduate, but a retired chimney-sweep named Hines, who made speeches to which nobody, except perhaps William, listened, near the martyr's memorial and william wore a flannel shirt and rode a bicycle very strange habits in those days and very horrible he was said to be though he was short-sighted and wore glasses a first-rate back at football but as football was a thing frowned on by the rowing men and coldly ignored by the bloods his talent for it did not help him he was one of the principal pariahs of our college, and it was rather in a spirit of bravado, and to show how sure of myself I was, that I began in my second year to cultivate his acquaintance. We had little in common. I could not think political economy the most exciting thing in the world, as he used to call it, nor could I, without yawning, listen to more than a few lines of Mr. William Morris's interminable, smooth, Icelandic sagas, which my friend, pious young socialist that he was, thought glorious. He had begun to write an Icelandic saga himself, and had already achieved some hundreds of verses. None of these pleased him, though to me they seemed very like his master's. I can see him now, standing on his hearth-rug, holding his manuscript close to his short-sighted eyes, declaiming the verses, and trying, with many angular gestures of his left hand, to animate them. A tall, broad, raw-boned fellow, 
with long brown hair flung back from his forehead, and a very shabby suit of clothes. Because of his clothes, and his socialism, and his habit of offering beer to a guest, I had at first supposed him quite poor, and I was surprised when he told me that he had from his guardian, his parents being dead, an allowance of three hundred pounds, and that when he came of age he would have an income of four hundred pounds, all out of dividends, he would groan. I would hint that Mr. Hines and similar zealots might disembarrass him of his load if he asked them nicely. No, he would say quite seriously, I can't do that, and would read out passages from Fabian essays to show that in the present anarchical conditions only mischief could result from sporadic dispersal of rent. Ten, twelve years hence, he would muse more hopefully, but by that time, I would say, you'll probably be married, and your wife mightn't quite... Whereat he would hotly repeat what he had said many times, that he would never marry. Marriage was an antisocial anachronism. I think its survival was in some part due to the machinations of capital. Anyway, it was doomed. Temporary civil contracts between men and women would be the rule, ten, twelve years hence, pending which time the lot of any man who had civic sense must be celibacy, tempered perhaps with free love. Long before that time was up, nevertheless, William married. One afternoon in the spring of ninety-five, I happened to meet him at a corner of Cockspur Street. I wondered at the immense cordiality of his greeting, for our friendship, such as it was, had waned in our two final years at Oxford. You look very flourishing, and, I said, you're wearing a new suit. I'm married, he replied, obviously without a twinge of conscience. He told me he had been married just a month. He declared that to be married was the most splendid thing in all the world. But he weakened the force of this generalization by adding that there never was anyone like his wife. "'You must see her,' he said, and his impatience to show her proudly off to someone was so evident, and so touching, that I could but accept his invitation to go and stay with them for two or three days. Why not next week? They had taken and furnished a sort of cottage in Blankshire, and this was their home. He had run up for the day on business, journalism, and was now on his way to Charing Cross. "'I know you'll like my wife,' he said at parting. "'She's, well, she's glorious.' As this was the epithet he had erst applied to Beowulf, and to Sigurd the Volsung, it raised no high hopes. And, indeed, as I was soon to find, he had again misused it. There was nothing glorious about his bride, some people might even have not thought her pretty. I myself did not, in the flash of first sight. Neat, insignificant, pleasing, was what she appeared to me, rather than pretty, and far rather than glorious. In an age of fringes, her brow was severely bare. She looked practical. But an instant later, when she smiled, I saw that she was pretty, too and presently I thought her delightful. 
William had met me in a governor's cart, and we went to see him unharness the pony. He did this in a fumbling, experimental way, confusing the reins with the traces, and profiting so little by his wife's directions that she began to laugh, and her laugh was a lovely thing. Quite a small sound, but exquisitely clear and gay, coming in a sequence of notes that neither rose nor fell, that were quite even. A trill of notes, and then another, and another, as though she were pulling repeatedly a little silver bell. As I describe it, perhaps the sound may be imagined irritating. I can only say it was enchanting. I wished she would go on laughing, but she ceased. She darted forward, and, William standing obediently aside, and I helping unhelpfully, unharnessed the pony herself and led it into the small stable. Decidedly, she was practical. But I was prepared now to be lenient to any qualities she might have. Had she been feckless, no doubt I should have forgiven her that, too. But I might have enjoyed my visit less than I did, and might have been less pleased to go often again. I had expected to rough it under William's roof, but everything thereunder, within the limits of a strict Arcadian simplicity, was well ordered. I was touched, when I went to my bedroom, by the precision with which the very small maid had unpacked and disposed my things, and I wondered where my hostess had got the lore she had so evidently imparted certainly not from william perhaps it only now strikes me from a handbook for mary was great at handbooks she had handbooks about gardening and others about poultry and one about the stable and others on cognate themes from these she had filled up the gaps left in her education by her father who was a widower and either a doctor or a solicitor i forget which in one of the smallest towns of an adjoining county. And I dare say she may have had, somewhere hidden away, a manual for young hostesses. If so, it must have been a good one. But to say this is to belittle Mary's powers of intuition. It was they, sharpened by her adoration of William, and by her intensity for everything around him, that made her so efficient a housewife. If she possessed a manual for young house-hunters, it was assuredly not by the light of this that she had chosen the home they were installed in. The sort of cottage had been vacant for many years, an unpromising and ineligible object a mile away from a village and three miles away from a railway station. The main part of it was an actual cottage of seventeenth-century workmanship, but a little stuccoed wing had been added to each side of it, in 1850 or thereabouts, by an eccentric old gentleman who at that time chose to make it his home. He had added also the small stable, a dairy, and other appanages. For these, and for garden, there was plenty of room, as he had purchased and enclosed half an acre of the surrounding land. Those two stuccoed, very Victorian wings of his— each with a sash window above and a French window below, consorted queerly with the old red brick and latticed panes, and the long wooden veranda that he had invoked did not unify the trinity, 
but one didn't want it to. The wrongness had a character all its own. The wrongness was right, at any rate after Mary had hit on it for William. As a spinster she would, I think, have been happiest in a trim modern villa, but it was a belief of hers that she had married a man of strange genius. She had married him for himself, not for his genius, but this added grace in him was a thing to be reckoned with, ever so much, a thing she must coddle to the utmost in the proper setting. She was a year older than he, though being so small and slight she looked several years younger, and in her devotion the maternal instinct played a great part. William, as I have already conveyed to you, was not greatly gifted. Mary's instinct in this one matter was at fault, but endearingly, rightly at fault. And as William was outwardly odd, wasn't it well that his home should be so too? On the inside, comfort was what Mary always aimed at for him, and achieved. The ground floor had all been made one room, into which you stepped straight from the open air. Quite a long, big room, or so it seemed from the lowness of the ceiling, and well freshened in its antiquity with rush mats here and there on the irregular red tiles, and very white whitewash on the plaster between the rafters. This was the dining-room, drawing-room, and general focus throughout the day, and was called simply the room. William had a den on the ground floor of the left wing, and there in the mornings he used to write a great deal. Mary had no special place of her own. Her place was wherever her duties needed her. William wrote reviews of books for the daily blank. He did also creative work. The vein of poetry in him had worked itself out, or rather, it expressed itself for him in Mary. For technical purposes, the influence of Ibsen had superseded that of Morris. At the time of my first visit, he was writing an extraordinarily gloomy play about an extraordinarily unhappy marriage. In subsequent seasons, Ibsen's disc having been somehow eclipsed for him by George Gissing's, he was usually writing novels in which everyone, or do I exaggerate, had made a disastrous match. I think Mary's belief in his genius had made him less diffident than he was at Oxford. He was always emerging from his den with fresh pages of manuscript into the room. You don't mind, he would say, waving his pages, and then would shout, Mary? She was always promptly forthcoming, sometimes from the direction of the kitchen in a white apron, sometimes from the garden in a blue one. She never looked at him while he read. To do so would have been lacking in respect for his work. It was on this that she must concentrate her whole mind, privileged auditor that she was. She sat looking straight before her, with her lips slightly compressed, and her hands folded on her lap. I used to wonder that there had been that first moment when I did not think her pretty. Her eyes were of a very light hazel, seeming all the lighter because her hair was of so dark a brown and they were beautifully set in a face of that pinched oval kind which is rather rare in England. 
Mary, as listener, would have atoned to me for any defects there may have been in dear old William's work. Nevertheless, I sometimes wished this work had some comic relief in it. Publishers, I believe, shared this wish, hence the eternal absence of William's name from among their announcements. For Mary's sake, and his, I should have liked him to be successful, but at any rate he didn't need money. He didn't need, in addition to what he had, what he made by his journalism. And as for success, well, didn't Mary think him a genius, and wasn't he Mary's husband? The main reason why I wished for light passages in what he read to us was that they would have been cues for Mary's laugh. This was a thing always new to me. I never tired of that little bell-like euphony, those funny little lucid and level trills. There was no stint of that charm when William was not reading to us. Mary was in no awe of him, apart from his work, and in no awe at all of me. She used to laugh at us both, for one thing and another, just the same laugh as I had first heard when William tried to unharness the pony. I cultivated in myself whatever amused her in me. I drew out whatever amused her in William. I never let slip any of the things that amused her in herself. Chaff is a great bond, and I should have enjoyed our bouts of it even without Mary's own special obligato. She used to call me, for I was very urban in those days, the gentleman from London. I used to call her the brave little woman. Whatever either of us said or did could be twisted easily into relation to these two titles, and our bouts, to which William listened with a puzzled, benevolent smile, used to cease only because Mary regarded me as a possible purveyor of what William, she was sure, wanted and needed down there in the country, alone with her, intellectual conversation after his work. She often, I think, invented duties in garden or kitchen, so that he should have this stimulus or luxury without hindrance. But when William was alone with me, it was about her that he liked to talk, and that I myself liked to talk, too. He was very sound on the subject of Mary, and so was I. And if, when I was alone with Mary, I seemed to be sounder than I was on the subject of William's wonderfulness, who shall blame me? Had Mary been a mother, William's wonderfulness would have been less greatly important, but he was her child as well as her lover, and I think, though I do not know, she believed herself content that this should always be, if so it were destined. It was not destined so. On the first night of a visit I paid them in April 1899, William, when we were alone, told me news. I had been vaguely conscious throughout the evening of some change, conscious that Mary had grown gayer and less gay, somehow different, somehow remote. William said that her child would be born in September if all went well. She's immensely happy, he told me. I realized that she was indeed happier than ever. And, of course, it would be a wonderful thing for both of us, he said presently, to have a son or a daughter. 
I asked him which he would rather it were, a son or a daughter. Oh, either, he answered wearily. It was evident that he had misgivings and fears. I tried to reason him out of them. He did not, I am thankful to say, ever let Mary suspect them. She had no misgivings. But it was destined that her child should live only for an hour, and that she should die in bearing it. I had stayed again at the cottage in July for some days. At the end of that month I had gone to France, as was my custom, and a week later had written to Mary. It was William that answered this letter, telling me of Mary's death and burial. I returned to England the next day. William and I wrote to each other several times. He had not left his home. He stayed there, trying, as he said in a grotesque and heart-rending phrase, to finish a novel. I saw him in the following January. He wrote to me from Charing Cross Hotel, asking me to lunch with him there. After our first greetings there was a silence. He wanted to talk of what he could not talk of. We stared helplessly at each other, and then in the English way talked of things at large. England was engaged in the Boer War. William was the sort of man whom one would have expected to be violently pro-Boer. I was surprised at his fervor for the stronger side. He told me he had tried to enlist, but had been rejected on account of his eyesight. But there was, he said, a good chance of his being sent out, almost immediately, as one of the Daily Blank's special correspondents. And then, he exclaimed, I shall see something of it. I had a presentiment that he would not return, and a belief that he did not want to return. He did not return. Special correspondents were not so carefully shepherded in that war as they have since been. They were more at liberty to take risks on behalf of the journals to which they were accredited. William was killed a few weeks after he had landed at Cape Town. And there came, as I have said, a time when I did not think of William and Mary often, and then a time when I did more often think of them, and especially much did my mind hark back to them in the late autumn of last year, for on the way to the place I was staying at, I had passed the little railway station whose name had always linked itself for me with the names of those two friends. There were but four intervening stations. It was not a difficult pilgrimage that I made some days later, back towards the past, for that past's sake and honor. I had thought I should not remember the way, the three miles of way, from the station to the cottage, but I found myself remembering it perfectly, without a glance at the finger-posts. Rain had been falling heavily, driving the late leaves off the trees, and everything looked rather sodden and misty, though the sun was now shining. I had known this landscape only in spring, summer, early autumn, Mary had held to a theory that at other seasons I could not be acclimatized. But there were groups of trees that I knew even without their leaves, and farmhouses and small stone bridges that had not at all changed. Only what mattered was changed. Only what mattered was gone. Would what I had come to see be there still? 
in comparison with what it had held, it was not much. But I wished to see it, melancholy spectacle though it must be for me if it were extant, and worse than melancholy if it held something new. I began to be sure it had been demolished, built over. At the corner of the lane that had led to it, I was almost minded to explore no further, to turn back. But I went on, and suddenly I was at the four-barred iron gate that I remembered between the laurels. It was rusty, and was fastened with a rusty padlock, and beyond it there was grass where a winding drive had been. From the lane the cottage never had been visible, even when these laurels were lower and sparser than they were now. Was the cottage still standing? Presently I climbed over the gate and walked through the long grass, and, yes, there was Mary's cottage, still there, William and Mary's cottage. Trite enough, I have no doubt, were the thoughts that possessed me as I stood gazing. There is nothing new to be thought about the evanescence of human things, but there is always much to be felt about it by one who encounters, in his maturity, some such intimate instance and reminder as confronted me, in that cold sunshine, across that small wilderness of long, rank, wet grass and weeds. Incredibly woe-begone and lonesome the house would have looked even to one for whom it contained no memories, all the more because in its utter dereliction it looked so durable. Some of the stucco had fallen off the walls of the two wings, thick flakes of it lay on the discoloured roof of the veranda, and thick flakes of it could be seen lying in the grass below. Otherwise there were few signs of actual decay. The sash window and the French window of each wing were shuttered, and from where I was standing the cream-coloured paint of those shutters, behind the glass, looked almost fresh. The latticed windows between had all been boarded up from within. The house was not to be let perish soon. I did not want to go nearer to it. Yet I did go nearer, step by step, across the wilderness, right up to the edge of the veranda itself, and within a yard of the front door. I stood looking at that door. I had never noticed it in the old days, for then it had always stood open. But it asserted itself now, master of the threshold. It was a narrow door, narrow even for its height, which did not exceed mine by more than two inches or so, a door that, even when it was freshly painted, must have looked mean, how much meaner now, with its paint all faded and mottled, cracked and blistered. It had no knocker, not even a slit for letters. All that it had was a largish keyhole. On this my eyes rested, and presently I moved to it, stooped down to it, peered through it. I had a glimpse of darkness impenetrable. Strange, it seemed to me, as I stood back, that there the room was, the remembered room itself, separated from me by nothing but this unremembered door, and a quarter of a century, yes. I saw it all in my mind's eye, just as it had been, the way the sunlight came into it through this same doorway, and through the lattices of these same four windows, 
the way the little bit of a staircase came down into it so crookedly, yet so confidently, and how uneven the tiled floor was, and how low the rafters were, and how littered the whole place was with books brought in from his den by William, and how bright with flowers brought in by Mary from her garden. The rafters, the stairs, the tiles were still existing, changeless, in despite of cobwebs and dust and darkness, all quite changeless on the other side of the door, so near to me. I wondered how I should feel if by some enchantment the door slowly turned on its hinges, letting in light. I should not enter, I felt, not even to look. So much must I hate to see those inner things, lasting, when all that had given to them a meaning was gone from them, taken away from them, finally. And yet, why blame them for their survival? And how know that nothing of the past ever came to them, revisiting, hovering, something, sometimes, perhaps? One knew so little. How not to be tender to what, as it seemed to me, perhaps the dead loved? So strong in me now was the wish to see again all those things, to touch them and, as it were, commune with them, and so queerly may the mind be wrought upon in a solitude among memories, that there were moments when I almost expected that the door would obey my will. I was recalled to a clearer sense of reality by something which I had not noticed before. In the doorpost to the right was a small knob of rusty iron, mocking reminder that to gain admission to a house one does not will the door, one rings the bell, unless it is rusty and has quite obviously no one to answer it, in which case one goes away. Yet I did not go away. The movement that I made, in despite of myself, was towards the knob itself. But I hesitated. Suppose I did what I half meant to do, and there were no sound. That would be ghastly. And surely there would be no sound. And if sound there were, wouldn't that be worse still? My hand drew back, wavered, suddenly closed on the knob. I heard the scrape of the wire, and then, from somewhere within the heart of the shut-house, a tinkle. It had been the weakest, the puniest of noises. It had been no more than is a fledgling's first attempt at a twitter. But I was not judging it by its volume. Deafening peals from steeples had meant less to me than that one single note breaking the silence in there, in there, in the dark. The bell that had answered me was still quivering, I supposed, on its wire. But there was no one to answer it, no footstep to come hither from those recesses, making prints in the dust. Well, I could answer it, and again my hand closed on the knob, unhesitatingly this time, pulling further. That was my answer, and the rejoinder to it was more than I had thought to hear. A whole quick sequence of notes, faint but clear, playful yet poignantly sad, like a trill of laughter echoing out of the past, or even merely out of this neighboring darkness. It was so like something I had known, so recognizable, and, oh, recognizing, that I was lost in wonder. 
and long must I have remained standing at that door, for I heard the sound often, often. I must have rung again and again, tenaciously, vehemently, in my folly. End of section 18